Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Great to be with you all. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I wish my wife, Lauren, and kids could have been here also. We had our in-laws in town with us all week, and they just flew out yesterday afternoon, and Lauren didn't want to try to navigate that process and also pack up the house and come. And so she's back home, but hopefully we'll be back in the future, and and y'all could meet them. They're a, a joy, and they're very loud. Um, yeah, as Luke said, I work with uh, the co- this college ministry called Reformed University Fellowship and did it at UW-Milwaukee for the last five years and just um, in God's providence was able to come to, to Fort Collins and take over at Colorado State University. And it's been great. And I have everything to learn about Colorado and its people and the students at but uh, it's been a joy for us so far and we're um, privileged to be here and get to minister the gospel and um, as I am privileged to come and worship with you all this morning. So Luke already read uh, the passage for us. I know I'm not staying with you in your series, so you'll have to bear with me, but uh, two short little parables, which I think are really rich for us. So let me just uh, say a prayer and then we'll get started. Father, thanks again for this beautiful, sunny Uh, Sunday morning that we can gather freely to worship you. I do pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit now, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see your son, that you would allow the the burdens and the, the weights that are on us in this world just to be set aside for this hour so that we could see you and worship you and be encouraged and even nourished this morning. And would you be given glory? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the, my favorite books that I read this last year uh, was written by a guy named Nabil Qureshi. It's called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Has anyone ever heard of this one? Probably not. A couple of you. Sweet. Um, and it's actually Nabil's story of how he came to embrace Christianity. He was born in California as a U.S. citizen to Pakistani immigrants who fled religious persecution at the hands of fellow Muslims. His parents were devout members of a peaceful Ahmadi sect of Islam. Justin Taylor, who's a blogger, wrote uh, an article about Nabil that came out the day he died uh, last year, September 16th, 2017. He was 34 years old. He had brain cancer. It's actually a tragic story. But growing up, Nabil's family was the most loving and tightly knit family that he knew. And it was really entirely centered on Islam, which was the, the, the framework and the blueprint for his life. His mother taught him Urdu and Arabic before he learned English at the age of four. And by the age of five, he had read the entire Quran in Arabic and memorized many of its chapters. And I have just about a five-year-old, and I don't think he's memorized anything of the Bible. So that, that puts most of us to shame, I would imagine. His parents also trained him in apologetics so that he would not only believe in Islam, but could defend it against other religions, primarily Christianity. In August of 2001, he became a student at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia, 
And Nabil observed a fellow student, David Wood, reading the Bible in his free time. And this struck Nabil as odd because he never had met a Christian who actually read the Bible. And so uh, they, they began to create a relationship and become friends. And Nabil challenged David's belief in Christianity, beginning with this charge, which is common for a Muslim, that the Bible had been corrupted over time. Now, in God's providence, David Wood was an aspiring Christian apologist, someone who was training to defend the faith. And so it was great how these two became friends and and could dialogue on these great issues, right? And so this debate lasted for, for several years. In working through some of these arguments and examining the evidence for himself, Nabil eventually became convinced of the general reliability of the New Testament, that you can take it to be what it claims to be. But next, he raised the objection that Jesus never claimed to be God. But after being shown that this was untrue, Nabil challenged David that Jesus never actually died on the cross. Maybe you've heard of the swoon theory, that Jesus only appeared to die, which um, is, uh, in my opinion, kind of easy to disprove. Uh, But again, by being willing to investigate the evidence, Nabil changed his mind. Finally, two and a half years later, Nabil raised the greatest uh, question or stumbling block for uh, any Muslim. How could one man die for another man's sins? And how could the one true God be a trinity? But he was now reading the Bible for himself and he was considering Jesus's claims for himself. Now, if you know anything about Islam, it's no small thing for a Muslim to, to become a Christian. Right, Because culture and life and family and tradition, all of that is a part of the faith and, and what you follow. And, and so Nabil's story, which I'll, I'll circle back to at the end, and these two little parables that Luke just read for us might seem like two different animals. Right? They might seem like I, I'm a pilot. So they might seem like a Boeing 747, right? a huge jet, and like a little Cessna 150. Now, but I would, I would argue both these planes in, in the story and in reality are landing on the same runway. And that's what Jesus is getting at here this morning. If I had to put it into a sentence, I would say this, this, these two parables. To live in the kingdom of heaven, we must count the world as loss. To live in the kingdom of heaven, we must count the world as loss. I, I really have, it's kind of a silly outline, but it's three things that we're going to work through. We're going to start with the context of these parables, because I just jumped into Matthew 13. Then we're going to look at the content, the parables themselves, and then finally, the consequence. What difference does that make for God's people today? So uh, context, parables, if you've read them before, Interesting little uh, teaching tools that Jesus used. One of his favorite methods to teach was, with, was using parables. And they really are this two-tiered thing. They're two-dimensional stories. On the one dimension, there's this earthly component to it, that if you were a contemporary in Jesus' day, you would hear this story, and it would just make sense to you. It'd be like, so I was going out to hike. What's that big, that snowy mountain over there? Yeah, I was, I was hiking that one, you know? And you're like, oh yeah, I know that one. You know I mean? You would follow Jesus as he was telling these parables. But then they also had a, a, a higher tier, a second dimension that had the spiritual uh, component to it that you might miss if you, weren't, if you didn't have ears to hear, as Jesus often said. But parables, this is not unique to me, I didn't coin this phrase, but parables both reveal and conceal. 
Okay, so they're revealing of spiritual truths to Jesus' followers, but they're also concealing of spiritual truths to those who do not have ears to hear, as Jesus would say. Matthew 13, this chapter that we jumped in, is actually a chapter of parables. If you have your Bible, if you've read this, it's just parable after parable after parable after parable, which is really interesting. And there's this interplay if you follow closely, between Jesus talking to the crowds, to the masses, and then Jesus kind of narrowing it in to his closest followers. And it kind of goes back and forth. So in the very beginning, in verses one through three, it says this, Jesus went out of the house and sat behind the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and it says, Jesus told them many things in parables, starting with the parable of the sower, if you remember that one. Then in verse 10 of chapter 13, the disciples come and ask him privately, Jesus, why do you speak in parables? And then he explains. And then further down in verse 24, Jesus goes back to the crowds and he gives the parables of the weeds, the mustard seed, and the leaven. But then further down in verse 36, Jesus leaves the crowds, goes into a house, and again the disciples come to him. And they ask him, hey, can you explain to us the parables of the weeds? By the way, I just love how the disciples like never know what's going on. Is that not true for us? Okay, let's keep going. Uh, and in, in that section, in the house, that's where the, when Jesus is explaining these parables to his disciples, that's where our two little parables come in. Okay, so they're in the house given to the disciples. And finally, at the end of the chapter, he goes to his hometown. No one believes him. Okay, so that one of the reasons why Jesus uses parables so often is because he's teaching crowds full of unbelievers. Okay, he was intentionally concealing truth. Why? Well, Jesus actually tells us in verse 14 of chapter 13, because their hearts had grown dull and their ears and their eyes have closed and they will never understand. But notice how revealing Jesus is with his disciples. If you follow me in this, in these, in these chap, in this chapter, right? Two times in this chapter alone, Jesus explains the parable so that they would understand. So they would grow. So they would shine as followers of Christ. Okay. So why does this all matter? Because Jesus gave these two parables we were looking at this morning, he gave them to his disciples. They were for the followers. They were for members of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, they're for the church. They're for true, committed, life-handed-over followers of Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning, uh, we might be tempted to think that these, as we read these two parables, that they're just kind of talking about someone who's not a believer who becomes a believer, so they're just like entry level or beginning parables, right? For, for being in the kingdom. I think we're tempted to think that. And in one sense, that is completely fair. And that does portray an accurate picture of what it is like to come and to, to encounter God for the first time. And it, even me as a pastor. So if you're here this morning, and if, if that's you, if you're, maybe someone invited you, maybe you saw a sign, maybe you listen to a podcast or something. But if you're here and you would not say, hey, I am a committed Christian, well, these parables are for you. And I actually think Jesus is challenging you this morning. He's saying, come and taste and see. He would say something like this. If you think you know what real treasure is in this life, what real joy is in this life, why don't you just come over here for a minute and walk with me? 
I think he's challenging you if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning. However, these two parables, the hidden treasure, the pearl of great value, are primarily given to Jesus's closest followers, to his disciples who must continually apply them throughout all of life. They have an ongoing, daily, normal life application. Just thinking back to a couple months ago as my wife and I packed up our house in Milwaukee and moved to Fort Collins, Uh, I was reminded of one thing that we did not put into the pods. We actually brought with us in our car as we moved. I don't know if you would guess it or not, but it was our Costco splurge from two years ago. The rechargeable Dyson V6 vacuum cleaner, cordless. Any of you have this tool? It is a wonderful gift from heaven. Uh, So we have these little kids and, you know, it turns out they make messes all the time. And we also realized that we don't really like to vacuum because we have this big old noisy Hoover with the cord and it's always getting stuck on things. And so we just wouldn't vacuum very often until we got the Dyson. And so we brought it with us in our car. We drove it, we plugged it in and we used it. So when we brought this thing home from Costco, we charged it and we vacuumed our house, right? Now, here's where I'm going with this. Not applying these parables every day as a Christian would be like bringing home the Dyson and using it one time and be like, well, that was a good purchase. Let's just take it out to the trash or never use it again. Rather, what, the whole purpose of this rechargeable fancy vacuum cleaner is that you use it every single day. You would clean your house every day. And that's what Jesus is getting at with these, with these two parables. They're not just for non-Christians becoming Christians. Therefore, believers who are committed and are following Jesus and must apply them every single day. Okay, so now let's jump into the content. Look at the parables themselves. Look again at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Now remember, parables were made up stories. Okay, there wasn't... This wasn't about an actual man, okay? We don't really know the background. This guy didn't exist. So it's always kind of funny to read some commentators who are like trying to put, like, well, this man probably like did this and this and this. We we don't know that. He wasn't a real person. This was a made up story about Jesus, right? But one thing we do know is that uh, federally backed banking institutions did not exist in Jesus's day. Okay, so historians will point out that because of wars, and raids and a lack of security sometimes compelled people to store their most valuable possessions in the ground. This would have been commonplace. Maybe an equivalent, like an old school equivalent for us today would be like, you know, hiding some cash under your mattress or something like that. We can kind of relate to that, right? But burying treasure in a field, probably none of us have done that, but that would have actually been pretty normal for people in Jesus's day. Now, the man's actions after he finds this treasure are of great interest. And let's not get into the details of, uh, you know, what we don't know as to why was this man going around through someone else's field digging for, like, let's not talk about that. Jesus doesn't make, he doesn't make a big deal of that. That's not the point of the parable. But what he does after he finds the treasure is interesting. So he goes about procuring this treasure appropriately and honestly, right? He doesn't just steal it, which you might have been tempted to do. He buries it and he goes and buys the field. What does he have to do to buy, the fi- to buy this field? He has to sell everything. He has to sell everything to buy this field. 
Here's how this translates spiritually. To be in a relationship with Christ, to be a member of the kingdom of heaven, a person needs to be willing to give up everything. John Calvin uh, put it this way. Christians, we are to prefer the kingdom of heaven to the whole world. You know what's crazy? Jesus doesn't even put this in terms of sacrifice. How does he describe it, right? Jesus describes this willingness to give up everything as joy. It's joy. Joyfully, a Christian ought to be willing to give up everything to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus's presence, the gospel, the kingdom are so indescribably remarkable that his, joyful, that his disciples joyfully prefer the kingdom of heaven to the whole world. Right now, my oldest son, uh, William, is really into collecting quarters. I don't know if any of your kids have ever done this, but he's got, qu- yes, he's got quarters everywhere, okay? He's got quarters in his birdhouse. He's got quarters in shoes. He's got quarters in Ziploc bags. He's got quarters under his pillow. He's got quarters everywhere. He is always asking people for quarters. Chances are, if he was here this morning, he might have asked some of you for some quarters. Uh, not too long ago, we were buying a, a new stove for our house, and we were at some appliance factory warehouse. And after uh, we you know, were going through the, I had paid for it. We were doing some of the details. My son goes up to the guy, the salesperson who sold us the stove. He's like, hey, do you have any quarters? And I think the salesperson felt some pressure because he just sold us a stove to like provide William with some quarters. So he's like, uh, I have a $5 bill. Hang on. And he goes and like changes over like, you don't need to do that. And he's like, no, it's okay. And he gives William like four quarters of a, of a dollar, you know? And the first thing William does is like throw one across the store, you know, like it's just, he's crazy. But William loves quarters and he collects them and he, and he keeps them. They're like his thing. Until... We go to the Walmart, uh, we go to Walmart to buy something for whatever it is. And I normally don't like going to Walmart, but they have everything. And, we, and you get into the vestibule and what, or the little entranceway and what's inside there? Like inside the one set of doors, but not inside the second set. You know what I'm talking about? Games and machines and candy and toys, right? And he sees this one game, which I know you've played before. It's the claw. You know <laughs> The claw game. I hate this game. You never can win at it, right? It's horrible. But William, I think it's the experience. He loves the claw game. So he, like, he, he knows to bring his beloved quarter collection to Walmart. He asked to go to Walmart just so he can play. And we're like, oh, don't waste your quarters on the claw. You know, like you're just going to lose them. But he would joyfully give up his quarters to play the claw game which is it's a silly connection, right? But as Christians, we ought to joyfully give up our quarters, uh, a life in this world to live with God in the kingdom of heaven or to play the claw game. You see where I'm going. Okay, uh, let's continue here. Look at the next parable of the last one, verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. This parable is very similar to the last one, but I do think there's a minor difference. In the last parable, we had a generic person, right, who who randomly happens across this treasure, wasn't searching for it. In this parable, we have a merchant who would have been 
a very wealthy individual in his day who was searching for a great pearl, which would have been very expensive in his day, and he finds one. Okay, so you have a random discovery and you have an intentional discovery in some sense. Now, the characters in both stories were overwhelmed with joy and they had to give up everything to find or to, to obtain this treasure, to obtain the pearl. But okay, so how does this difference translate to us spiritually? What does that mean for the Christian? Well, I think regardless of one's background, it, you know, whether a person grew up in a Christian family here in America or in a family that rarely went to church, or if you grew up in Saudi Arabia, the beauty and the loveliness of Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel is worth more than the world, regardless of your background. If you were privileged to grow up in a Christian home or if you were not. Some have searched diligently for God and have found him through Jesus. This word search in the Greek would have been used to describe Sherlock Holmes. Okay, it means to investigate, to examine, to consider. A New Testament example of this would be um, in Acts chapter 17, the Bereans. If, if, you've, if you've heard of the Bereans in the book of Acts, they, search, they diligently searched the scriptures to see if the things about Jesus were true. That's, that's, that's what's going on here. Um, uh, but others seeming, seem to randomly happen across the treasure of the gospel, maybe by reading something or by talking to a friend or family member or by having a dream. But again, regardless of the approach or the background, knowing Jesus as Lord is the greatest joy that mankind has ever known. So much so that he is worth counting the world as loss. The apostle Paul put it so beautifully. Philippians chapter three, Paul wrote, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Finally, just the ending here, the consequence, what difference does this make for God's people today? So if you are here and you're not a Christian, like I said earlier, I really do think Jesus is challenging you in this passage right? Like who doesn't want to be happy and find joy and who doesn't look for that in every different place in this world? Jesus would challenge you to say, I bet you you'll find more of it with me than you ever thought possible. So I would ask you, if you're here and you're not a Christian to consider this, consider Jesus, consider his death and his resurrection to bring you into the kingdom of heaven. But for, for fellow believers, for the disciples, for those inside the house, right? Not the crowd, those inside the house. Um, a silly thing. Let's use the Dyson every day, right? Like let's vacuum every day. Let's use the tools that God has given us. Let's continue to apply them. And I think we need to start by admitting that we love this world, that we do. Jesus has counted the world as lost. I, I think if we're being honest, we need to start by admitting that, hey, like I love the things of this world and it has way too much of my heart. And to use the Christian word, we ought to repent of this, which just means turning away from our love for the things and turning toward God. 
We don't like to count the world as loss, right? We're fascinated with these tiny fleeting pleasures that we get from food and from drink and from adventure and from vacation. But in his mercy, God has given his people ears to hear and eyes to see true treasure for what it really is. The good news is that the Lord Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that we who were poor could become rich. Jesus considered what he had in heaven with the Father and willingly gave it up. He counted it as a loss because he loves his people. He loves his church. To think Colorado, Jesus is asking us to hike the trail of godliness and denial, but it is a trail that he has already blazed before us. And if you're asking the question, what, what does it mean to count the world as loss? Like, what is that actually? My answer would be anything that is keeping you from godliness and obedience. That is what Jesus wants you to count as loss. It's a turn away. I really do think the less entangled we are with the world, the more joy we will experience with the living God. And so maybe practically, we ought to start each day with prayer, asking God to empower us by his spirit to count the world as loss, to change our hearts and move them from these unsatisfying loves that we have for this world and to live in true joy with Christ. Thinking back to Nabil in conclusion, uh, Nabil recounted his conversion toward the end of this book. He wrote this. He said, I began mourning the impact of the decision I knew I had to make. On the first day of my second year of medical school, it became too much to bear. Yearning for comfort, I decided to skip school. Returning to my apartment, I placed the Quran and the Bible in front of me. I turned to the Quran, but there was no comfort there. For the first time, the book seemed utterly irrelevant to my suffering, irrelevant to my life. It felt like a dead book. With nowhere left to go, I opened up the New Testament and started reading. Very quickly, I came to the passage that said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Electric, the words leapt off the page and jump-started my heart. I could not put the Bible down. I began reading fervently, reaching Matthew 10:37, which taught me that I must love God more than my mother and father. But Jesus, I said, accepting you would be like dying. I will have to give up everything. The next verses spoke to me, saying, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Jesus was being very blunt. For Muslims, following the gospel is more than a call to prayer. It is a call to die. I knelt at the foot of my bed and gave up my life. A few days later, the two people I loved most in this world were shattered by my betrayal. To this day, my family is broken by the decision I made, and it is excruciating every time I see the cost I had to pay. But Jesus is the God of reversal and redemption. He redeemed sinners to life by his death, and he redeemed a symbol of execution by repurposing it for salvation. He redeemed my suffering by making me rely upon him for my every moment, bending my heart toward him. It was there in my pain that I knew him intimately. To follow him is worth giving up everything. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for these 
three verses that remind us that knowing God through Christ is greater than anything this world has to offer. Would you help us to apply this, Lord, to be ready to count the world as lost, anything that is taking us and pulling us away from you, and to turn to you and run to you. Thank you for your grace to us and your son. We pray this in his name. Amen.